Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Chapter 10, book of Genesis. These are the descendants of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth was Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripath, and Togmarma. The sons of Javan, Elishav, Elisha and Tarshish, the Kittim and the Dudanim. From these, the islands of the nations were separated in their lands, each according to its language, by their family and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. And Cush begot Nimrod. He was the first to be a mighty man on earth. He was a mighty hunter before Adonai. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Adonai. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, and the land of Shinar. From that land, Ashur went forth and built Nineveh, Rehovoth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. And Mitzrayim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kaslahim, whence the Philistines came forth, and Kaphtuhim. And Canaan begat Sidon, and his firstborn, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jezebites, and the Mamorites, the Girishites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Avdites, the Zemarites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites branched out, and the Canaanite boundary extended from Sidon going toward Gerar, as far as Gaza going toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebim, as far as Lasha. These are the descendants of Ham by their families, by their languages and their lands and their nations. And to Shem also to him were born. He was the ancestor of all those who lived on the other side, the brother of Japheth the elder, the sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Apachad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. And Apachad begot Shelah, and Shelah begot Eber, and to Eber were born two sons. The name of the first was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided, and the name of his brother was Jotkan. Jotkan begot Amudad, Zelepheth, Zelepheth, Hasamarapheth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Job, Jobab, all these were the sons of Jotan. Their dwelling place extended from Mesha, going towards Sephar, the mountain to the east. These are the descendants of Shem, according to their families, by their language, in their lands, by their nations. These are the families of Noah's descendants, according to their generations, in their nations, and from the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. The end of chapter 10. 
which we're going to comment on here. It's interesting because typically when you're reading a chapter such as this one, and it's, you find yourself reading a bunch of genealogies, this one beget that one beget that one, the tendency is in our carnal mind is just to kind of zone out, be thinking about the dishes that are in the dishwasher and need to be put up. We don't really think that there's, it's not a story, it's not intriguing seemingly, it's not anything going on in those realms. But we're going to find out today with God's help that in fact this chapter is one of the most important in the Torah. It's one of the most important chapters in the Torah and it sets a stage to explain to us the heart of God and what he wants for all mankind. Before I begin there, though, I want to go back to chapter 9 for just a, a moment, to the beginning of chapter 9, and I want to share a thought that um, is going to kind of be a prerequisite, if you will, for holiness. The sages talk about, our sages talk about, that the ancient Jewish sages mention that a prerequisite for holy living is kosher eating. It's really not optional. It's actually the prerequisite. You know, many classes in college and so on have prerequisites. You have to have taken a particular class before you can take that class. And the idea being is that if you're not proficient in whatever the prerequisite is, then you're, not, you're going to be lost in the sauce, pun intended, and the class that you're looking to take. So when it comes to holiness, what we eat matters. Interesting, isn't it? And we're not talking about here about health. Because kosher eating is not necessarily healthy eating, which is a big misnomer. I mean, we, my, my family last night, we had uh, blackened salmon with rice and, and a homemade from scratch. It was good, wasn't it? <laughs> Alfredo sauce. Melted some butter in there. Melted some uh, heavy cream. Some cream cheese, lots of garlic, which Nathaniel said he didn't like, but he ate it. <laughs> Salt, right? The secret to French cooking, by the way, is cook everything with butter. <laughs> and uh, the reality was, as we ate that, it was good. There wasn't anything healthy about that. It was all 100% kosher. It was good. God's help, we're going to have some more later. <laughs> uh and cherry cobbler with, with coconut uh, whipped cream. Thank you, Trader Joe's. It's par, by the way. I'm just saying, so I want a public service announcement. Their coconut, you know, whipped cream thing you put in a little can, like that. It's made with coconut milk. It tastes like coconut. It's parv, and it is delicious. You'll never go back to regular cream. Trader Joe's. Thank you. As a paid service announcement. <laughs> but anyway, everything starts with food. And so we see in the garden, when God plants man in the garden, he said to him, he gave him a food law. And I, I, I wanted to bring this up because I, didn't, I don't think we had a chance really to touch on it much last week. But it's where you need to begin. People are always asking, where do I need to begin on my walk of faith? And so I've often said that the walk of Torah, true Judaism in Yeshua, which is legitimate, by the way, in case you're wondering, um, the, the important thing is just to begin. 
I would say beyond that, the place to begin is to begin to kosher your diet, kosher your kitchen. There's a lot of misnomers about kashrut. People think because they've been they've read online somewhere that you have to have two refrigerators and two stoves and two sinks and two dishwashers and two kitchens and two wives. But the reality is, <laughs> I threw that one in there to see if you were like, yeah, I read that. Wait, whoa. Reality is you don't need all that. That's all. That's great if you can afford it and if you have a big mansion and all that and, you know, and just remember the little people. But most, most Jews don't have that. The vast majority of them don't. Okay. Um, so there's ways to do that. We won't get into all that. That's all technical stuff. You can ask me later about it. We could work with you on it. But the point being is begin to work towards that. Because I want you to remember a, a, a fundamental truth. Because most people in their theology think, ah, what is it? God doesn't care what you eat. It doesn't really matter at all. It doesn't even, it makes no difference. We've been trained that. We've been brainwashed into that. And isn't it interesting that not only do the people of God today, I'm talking about people who love God and they believe in the Messiah and they read the Gospels and people that genuinely love God, they just don't know what they don't know. Isn't it interesting that not only do they not eat kosher, in fact, they go out of their way I'm not on purpose, I'm just saying this is what they've been trained to do, to make sure that they don't eat kosher, like really, really not eat kosher. To the extent that whenever those people have their religious festivals, there's always a, a, a pig center, center mass in front of everything. So not only do we not eat kosher, but like we go out of our way, not we, but you know what I mean, we go out of our way to make sure that we're really, really, really not going to eat. Well, who do you think that comes from? So it's really interesting that in life you'll find that when you dispense with the particulars, you also dispense with the big things. This is why, as I said last week, that every employer wants somebody who's detail-oriented. Why? Because if you're not focused on the details, you won't be focused on the big things. That's just common sense. So if you dispense with all the little things, all the little nuances of kosher, then you are going to end up with pig on your table. Now also remember too that whenever the Torah ultimately comes down to um, putting limits on us. It's about making distinctions. Because in our life, if we don't put a governor on our life, then we'll get out of hand. In other words... The fact that you, somebody says, well, I just, I, I have to eat. I'm just going to throw this out there, like just, just an example, okay? Because I had people say this to me, you know. I could never be Jewish. Why? Because I could never give up bacon. First of all, that's like a, really? Wow. But, um, if you say to yourself, I could never give up bacon, then, then how, could you, how could you possibly suggest that you could refrain from committing adultery? Well, you say, I can make that distinction. Really? You can't even help what you eat. Much less when the big temptation rolls along. You can't even, you can't even push away a, a bacon cheeseburger. So how are you going to push away the woman that's flattering you and saying, oh, honey, you know, I, you're... I'd treat you right, all those kind of things, right? 
That's how you make distinctions in life. So Torah brings distinctions. It helps us to say no to the little things so that we can say no to the big things when they, those big things arrive. This is why David said about Goliath, Goliath, come on. I killed the lion and killed the bear. I'm going to kill this guy too. He walked up to the, he didn't walk right up. He didn't, I mean, excuse me, David didn't just walk up to the giant and kill him first. First, God sent him a lion and then sent him a bear, and he killed both of them. And now he says, now you can kill that guy. Who's much more dangerous, obviously, than the lion or the bear. So anyway, it says here in verse 3 of chapter 9, this shall be food for you. It's interesting, Rabbi Monk points out, that it's interesting that when you have a whole new world, it's a whole new world. And Noah, 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 thank you, honey. When you, Noah's starting out with a, a, a new world, a new family, God shows up, and the first thing he says is, here's what you can eat. Isn't that interesting? It says, the change in food Solomon proclaimed here is the first instruction, the first instruction which man received after the flood. Isn't that interesting? The first instruction that man got in the garden was what he can and cannot eat. And after the mikvah of the world, when you came up out of the water and were born again, the first thing God said to us is, here's what you can eat. Most of the people that, I'm, that are hearing me right now, that would hear me in the future, would, that's like the last thing in the world you think God would even care about. You think that God would say, okay, from now on, don't steal from people. Don't create Hamas. From now on, don't be this, don't be that. Don't, be, don't murder. Like, that's a big thing, right? Don't do that. No, God says, now listen, here's your menu. Don't you know people are like, menu? We just, those people are like killing the people in the streets. And, yeah, he, and God's answer to that is, I know, it all began by what they had for lunch. See, it doesn't compute to the Greco-Roman mind. Because the Greco-Roman mind wants to believe that what we're doing has nothing to do with the way we live our day, on a, our life on a daily basis. And in fact, it all starts there. This is why Judaism is not centered in the synagogue. It's centered at the kitchen table. What you do at your kitchen table is going to reflect how you're going to live in the synagogue and in the world. That's why the first thing you need to do is Kosher your kitchen. The first thing you need to do is start to buy kosher food. That's the first thing you need to do. For one thing, if you think about it, it, it gives you a detail-oriented life because when you go shopping, you're looking for the details. In this case, a little bitty hexure on a, on a can that sometimes are microscopic. Yeah. Went to the eye doctor this week, and the doctor said, yeah, you kind of might kind of start thinking about maybe doing the bifocal thing. I said, well, I rebuke you. <laughs> Do you know who you're talking about? That's right. And he showed me the little bifocal on the little thing, you know, number one, number two, number one, number two. Like, number two is better. That's a bifocal. I'll push it away. <laughs> anyway... The fact that the moral reformation of man, it says here, begins with a dietary law proves the fundamental attachment, or attachment, or excuse me, importance rather, attached to it. 
The fact that God gave us a food law from the very get-go after the mikvah proves how important. The reason I'm spending so much time on it this morning is it should be obvious that this is how we begin to change. And isn't it interesting that change begins, in this case, on the inside? It begins in, internally in order to become eternally. God wants to correct us, body, soul, and spirit. It's really, you know, God has given to us a great task, and it's, it's, a, it's a great honor, and it's a great challenge, and that is to introduce to the world the actual faith of the Messiah. Lapid Judaism. That is a Torah true and an authentic, orthodox, observant Judaism in Yeshua. We should be careful that, to recognize that we are our own sect. Somebody might say, that's not how they do it in Brooklyn. I say, this isn't Brooklyn. Let me say that again. Somebody says, that's not how they do it in Brooklyn. This ain't Brooklyn. If you want to li- do it how they do it in Brooklyn, you need to move to Brooklyn. This is Texas. This is how we do it in Texas. Okay? So we don't pronounce that word like that in Brooklyn. I don't speak Brooklyn. I speak Texan. I was born and raised here, the Alamo, you know, stormtroopers. I'm just saying that's who we are. <laughs> so you want to be, you want to disarm yourself and go to New York, do that. But I'm not going to disarm myself. Just saying. No, thank you. I didn't grow up in Eastern Europe. My family's from France, Louisiana. Hmm. But we have a great, but sad, what's sad though, what's unfortunate, I mean, it's, it's, it's can't fix yesterday. All you can do is work on today and plan for tomorrow. But it's sad that the people that believed in Messiah so long ago just jettisoned all this. It's sad. Now we're having to rebuild it. We're having to reteach fundamentals. So anyway, I don't want to get off topic there. Food always plays a major role. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who is the father, considered the father of Orthodox Judaism, never had a, a smika. He says, uh, talking about kosher eating guards us from being enslaved. That's my thought. Kosher eating guards us from being enslaved by our carnal passions, as I said a moment ago. But this is what Rabbi Hirsch says about slavery itself. He said, slavery as the, as the fatal consequence of men's inability to control his instincts. That's his definition of slavery. Slavery is man's fatal consequences to his inability to control his instincts. Whoever lacks the will to control his passions becomes first the slave of his own senses and then the slave of other people. But he who knows how to remain in control of his nature and how to forego the enslavement of his sensual appetites will never let himself be led about and enticed, not even by chains of gold. He may go under and and perish, but he can never be enslaved. So it is with the individuals, and so it is with the nations. For Sforno, Sforno writes that slavery means a degradation to the lowest level of the social hierarchy, 
whose goal is to preserve the other social strata from the influence of moral depravity. We become slaves when we give in to our lives, to what we, what we, our senses, I should say. Now, going back to chapter 10, as I said, most people would read this chapter with all of these names and all of this uh, who begat who and so on and think, wow, what does this have to do with um, the tea in China? And, and with respect to the tea in China, nothing. But with respect to life, everything. This teaches, this chapter teaches a fundamental concept, and that is that ultimately all mankind are brothers. And we may not be in the same family necessarily, but we are all brothers. We all come from a common ancestor. This is why in Judaism, in relative modern times, Judaism became a blood cult religion. Where you're not, um, if you're not born Jewish, then you're really not supposed to be in the synagogue and you're not really supposed to uh, try to embrace Torah on any level. Um, and even though in certain sects of Judaism today, they very, 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 very slimly, they allow conversions, but it's very rare, it's very arduous, it's extremely difficult, and they would rather not have you, really, actually. The reality is. Um, and that's just a fact of the matter. If you don't believe me, you can study out the whole topic for yourself. But Judaism has become a blood cult, and this is why it's so wrong. Because the whole, everybody in the whole world are ultimately related. That's the reality. This is why when people say, as somebody said apparently to one of our members online at some point recently, some Jewish person said to them, leave our heritage alone. That is a statement of colossal haughtiness. Breathtaking ignorance and uh, typical textbook bigotry and pride. The God called us to be a light to the nations. So to tell somebody from the nations, leave our heritage alone, that's crazy. It's insane. But that's what's happened today. That's, where, that's the state of things in which we find ourselves. And it's interesting to read Rabbi Monk's comments on chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, These are the descendants of the sons of Noah. The chapter traces the nations of the earth from Noah's sons. The principal races and people known on earth are arranged as different branches of one great family. Thus, all the nations have sprung from the same ancestry. All men are therefore brothers. This is what Rabbi Monk says. How can we say to our brother then, leave our heritage alone? Are you kidding me? We all have the same father, ultimately. This sublime conception of the unity of the human race, he writes, logically follows from the belief in the unity of God. And like it, forms one of the cornerstones of the edifice of Judaism. Polytheism could never rise to the idea of humanity. Heathen society, Rabbi Monk says, was, was uh, vitiated by, by failure to recognize the moral obligation 
involved in our common humanity. There is, therefore, it says, no parallel to this chapter in the literature of other peoples. Hence, it has been called a messianic document. Chapter 10, according to Rabbi Monk, is referred to as a messianic document. Why a messianic document? Because God's whole purpose is to reach his family, which are the children he created, which is the whole world. Not to be discriminated against by where they were born or who their mama was or what their skin color is or all those kind of nonsensical things. Who cares anyway? Yeshua made no discrimination. He said, you know, he tested non-Jews, like the woman who chased after him said, should I give the children's bread to the dogs? He referred to as a dog because he knew that that was the common idea back in those days, that non-Jews were just like dogs. He was testing her. Should I give the children's bread to the dogs? And she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs of the master table. That's our dog's favorite verse. He was testing her to see, will you be, what, what, what's she going to respond? And she said, I just, I'll, I'll take a crumb. And he said, you can have the whole loaf now because you were willing to take a crumb. She had such humility. She didn't stand up and say, I'm not a dog. Why did the Great Commission begin at Jerusalem? Again, a comment from Rabbi Monk. It says, other ideas reveal that the divine providence reigns over nations and their history just as it does over nature. He says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the borders of the peoples according to the number of children of Israel. This comes from Deuteronomy 32.8. So he says, the distribution of people over the face of the earth takes into account the fact that when the time comes, when the time comes, the Jewish people will take possession of the area situated at the center of the earth, Ezekiel 38, 12, which is the center point at the three crossroads of the continents. So why did God choose Jerusalem? Well, it's the center of the earth, but it's also, if you unfold the map of the globe, you will see that Jerusalem is at the center, and it's the crossroads for all the continents. You have to go through Jerusalem. Why did God do that? If he wanted Jews just to remain aloof from everybody else and just therefore and no more, he should have put us in the, the far west corner or whatever, east corner, either way, of Australia. Or some island in the middle of nowhere, like Rebbe just said. Or in Antarctica. We'd just be us and the penguins. Why did he put us in the center of the earth? Why did he put his temple in the center of the earth? Because he prophesied through the prophet that all the nations, say all, all, all the nations would stream to Jerusalem. This is Isaiah 2, 3, would stream to Jerusalem. Why? We say it every single week because the Torah will go forth from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem. To who? To, where, where is it, to whom is it going? When it says the Torah will go out from Zion and the word of God to, from Jerusalem, what does it, it mean? Well, if you go back and read that, where that verse comes from in Isaiah 2.3, you see that that is to the nations. 
The Torah is going to go out from Jerusalem and the word of God, or excuse me, from Zion and the word of God from Jerusalem to who? To the nations. This is what Lapid Judaism was all about. Lapid Judaism is about fulfilling the commission of Yeshua when he said this gospel. It's this gospel, not that gospel. This gospel is a Torah true gospel. This gospel is is putting together the faith of the Messiah, not another gospel that creates another religion. It takes guts, by the way. It takes, it takes endurance. I said before, and I never want you to forget it, that Hasidic Judaism today is considered true Jews, you know. I'm not saying they're not really Jewish. Just understand that that's just the mindset, right? If you're, if you're a Hasidic Jew, then that's considered the epitome of observant Judaism today. But when Hasidic Judaism began in the mid and late 1700s, they were considered blasphemers, idolaters, phony, baloney, plastic, banana, good time, rock and roll Jews. They weren't even considered Jews. You couldn't marry them. You weren't even allowed to rent them a room. You understand what I'm saying? And and it was that way for nearly a hundred years. That Hasidic Jews were outcasts. People got on Facebook and and trolled their Facebook page and said, Y'all are fakes. Y'all are phonies. The Baal Shem Tov's not a rabbi. Where'd he go to school? They trolled him. Whenever they put up a YouTube video, they got on there and made ugly comments. You kidding the picture? And today, the, when, when you want to talk about what is Judaism, it's, it's that. So what does that tell you? Did, did, the, did the Hasidim quit? Did they say, you know what, you're right. You're right. This is all crazy. No, they didn't. Why? Because what they had, they knew, they believed was the truth. And they held on to it. While, while you, know, you know how, I want you to imagine that you're in, you're in a Hasidic village and other Jews, not, not Nazi goons, not Russian, not Russian uh, czar soldiers, Jewish rabbinic leadership comes into your town, gathers up all your Hasidic books and burns them in the public square. Think about that for a second. So the next time you feel a little intimidated, just think back to other Jews who also face that level of bigotry and discrimination and hate that continue to move forward. Am I inspiring anybody today? I don't know. Okay. So it says here, the Jewish people take possession of the area, which is the center point of of the world, and from here, the rays of light of truth will emanate to all parts of the world. Why did God choose Israel? Why did he choose Jerusalem? The reason was to make sure that the Torah truth spread to the whole world. Why did the Great Commission have to happen in Jerusalem? Why did it have to happen? Why did Yeshua give his great speech where he said go into all the nations why did it happen in Jerusalem where he would on a Sabbath day be 
make his ascent on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because that's the pattern. The pattern was the Torah is supposed to go out to the whole nations. This is uh, part of the proof, by the way, of the Gospels. The Rambam writes that this genealogical table is further proof of the creation of the world. He demonstrates that Abraham knew Noah, who was 58 years old when Noah, Abraham was 58 years old when Noah died. Think about that. He was only 58 when Noah died. And Noah's father Lamech was 56 years old at Adam's death. Noah's daddy was 56 when Adam died. So it says, thus there was a rather short chain of tradition, quote-unquote, from the creation of the time of the patriarchs. And when they proclaimed the truth about the creation of, of, by God, they could count on eyewitnesses to confirm their words. Abraham was the fourth link in the unbroken chain of tradition from Adam. Moreover, Isaac and Jacob both knew Shem and, and, and Noah and studied in their academy. Where did Shem, or excuse me, where did Jacob and where did Isaac learn Torah? From Noah and Shem. Can you imagine that YouTube channel? The Aliyah day with Noah and Shem. He taught them the divine laws. Jacob was 50 years old when Shem died. Jacob was 50 years old when Shem died. This is what, this chapter therefore proves that the message that Abraham was giving, that later Isaac would continue and then Jacob would continue, that this message was true and correct because they had received it just a couple of generations back as an eyewitness. It's amazing, isn't it? In the time we have left, I just want to, I just want to bring up Pituke Hotem. Pituke Hotem has an insight here because he really brings down, he kind of plums the depths of these names and what they represent. You can look in the Midrash Rabbah. We won't have time to get to it today. I have it marked. But there's lots of good things in the Midrash Rabbah that talk about these names and, and uh, uh, where the uh, nations of the world came from, like Germany, Germania, and Greece, Africa came from all, all, these, all these great nations and great continents and everything that we talk about today all come from Noah's sons, every one. It's amazing. This is why I just can't emphasize enough. This is why God wants everybody to be in the covenant. He wanted Noah to be in the covenant and Noah's sons. Do you understand that? That he wanted Noah and his offspring to be in covenant with him. And it, was, it wasn't God's desire necessarily that there would be people that would rise up like Nimrod and take people away and begin to become idolaters. It was never God's will for the nations to become idolaters. So therefore, it's his will for them to make teshuva. It says in my, it says in, Pituke uh, Hotam says here, in my humble opinion, the names of Noah's children and their offspring were recorded for a purpose and have profound meaning. Man is endowed with three components, a yetzer tov, that's a good, good inclination, a soul, and a yetzer hara, which is the evil inclination. 
The Yetzir Tov and the soul guide us down the straight and proper path of serving Hashem through Torah and good deeds. The Yetzir Hara, on the other hand, has the opposite intent. It works hard to prevent man from serving God. It prevents him from performing positive commandments and persuades him to transgress negative commandments. That's what the Yetzir Hara does. So if you think about... The, the inclination to disobey Torah or to disregard it altogether, just understand that where that comes from. It comes from the evil inclination. It says, every person in his own way can be referred to as a Noach. If he follows the straight and proper path, if he occupies his, himself with Torah and good deeds, then the expression Noach lo shenivra, that is, it is good, Noach, that he was created, can be applied to him. If the opposite of true, then the expression, Noach lo shelo nivra, it would be better if he were never created. This is found in the Talmud in Aravim 13b. It says the, the names of Noach's sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafeth, allude to the soul, the Yetzer Tov, and the Yetzer Hara. Shem refers to the soul just as Hashem is invisible. Soul too is the soul invisible. Yefet, from the word Yafe, beautiful or good, refers to the Yetzer Tov. Or Yetzer, yes, the Yetzer Hatov. Ham, the word means heat. Ham means heat. It refers to the Yetzer Hara because... Because the Yetzir Hara heats up. It causes us to burn with passion or desire. The Torah proceeds to teach us the offspring, that is the outcome of each of these, beginning with the Yetzir Hatov, represented by Yafe. Gomer, that name Gomer, the offspring or the result of the Yetzir Hatov, is to encourage a person to learn Torah. So it says here, we mentioned that Gomer represents learning Torah. We will now analyze some of the offspring of Gomer. Why is Gomer, by the way, related to learning Torah? Because it uses the same letters as Gemar. Which the word Gemara, we talk about the Talmud. The Talmud is the Mishnah and the Gemara together. It's like the, like the Senate and the House of Representatives. That's how you remember the, the Talmud. Like what is the Talmud? The Talmud is the Congress of Israel. The Talmud is the Mishnah, like the Senate, and the Gemara, which is like the uh, House of Representatives. The word Gemara means learning. The Mishnah means like repeating. The Mishnah are, is about the rabbis who got together and the sages who got together and said, I heard this from my father who heard it from his father. You know, like Abraham heard it from Adam. Or, you know, right? He, or Abraham heard it from Noah who heard it from Lamech who heard it from Adam. Right? Anybody doubt you if you said to somebody, my grandfather once told me? Would somebody say to you, where's that written down? It's not written down anywhere. My grandfather told me, you're a liar. I am word of written down only. <laughs> if it's not recorded in a history book, I don't believe it. So I have a question for you. Who wrote it in the history book? This author, where, did it, where was it written before he wrote it down? No, he heard the story and wrote it down. Okay, so before that it was oral? Yeah, like the Word of God, you mean. Because before the Word was written down in a Torah scroll, what happened? We heard it. Which means what? Both the written and the oral Torah were originally oral. So really, they were both oral, just one was written down and one wasn't. 
So if you don't believe in the oral Torah, really the truth is you don't believe in the Torah. See, this is why you've got to think things through logically. No one teaches you that but me. <laughs> so we mentioned the Gemara represents learning Torah. We will now analyze some of the offspring of Gemara, or Gemara, Slika, which highlight the benefit derived from learning. The sons of Gomer means through learning one causes Gorem, similar to Gemara, that Hashem's divine presence should rest upon him. Ashkenaz is one of the offspring of Gomer. This name can be broken down, which implies to the Aleph, Shachin, Zayin, which implies the divine presence of Hashem who is Aleph, dwells, Shechin, within the person who learns his Torah. The letter Zion alludes to the divine presence, which is sometimes referred to as Bat Sheva, the daughter of seven. The Shekinah of God is talking about here, the, the, in Texan, the Shekinah presence. And Rifat, this name is comprised of the same letters as uh, the Resh, Resh, Pei. It has a numerical value of 216 which is the same as the word givora, might. Thus, this represents the attribute of Hashem that by learning Torah, one sweetens the attributes and gains might. And finally, togarama. This can be divided up in the words vehag, rama, or the word hag means a crown, while rama connotes height. This alludes to the crown of Torah, which is the greatest of all crowns. One who learned. Y'all catch that? The king who rules over kings. The greatest of all count crowns is the Torah. And Yeshua is the Torah manifest. It says, one who learns Torah has earned the crown of Torah, which is the crown of this world and the next world. The sons of Yavan, it says here, Elisha and Tarshish, Kitim and Dodanim, from verse Chapter 10, verse 4, it says here, we mentioned above that the name Yavin is comprised of the same letters uh, uh, as No, beauty, which allude to one who is beautiful in his Torah and his actions. The verse alludes to a person that is guaranteed that his words will be accepted by his fellow man when one expounds the Torah and fulfills the mitzvah in a pleasing manner. In words of rebuke, if, they, if he does this, his words of rebuke are heeded. When he advises or instructs people, they accept what he says. When he attempts to establish peace between rivals, they listen to his suggestions, and he is not ignored. This is the idea contained in this word. The sages once said also that, that the antidote to the Yetzahara, or to sin itself, is the Torah. If you think about it, that means that Yeshua is the cure. Yeshua is the cure to the Yetzahara. Yeshua is the cure to, uh, to sin. It says, when a person occupies himself with Torah and good deeds purely for the sake of heaven, he derives, the, he, der, he derives, rather, not derives, but drives away the klipa or the the evil forces, as it will. 
He drives it into submission and separates it from himself. Once the klepa has been removed, it no longer has the power to inflict any harm, neither above in the spiritual realms nor below in the physical realms. This is the power of studying the Torah, of learning Torah, of bringing it into your house and bringing it into your home, bringing it into your life. It drives away the evil presence. It drives away the enemy. The enemy hates it, by the way, when you keep Torah. By the way, you know, sometimes from, from time to time we experience, as I alluded to earlier, we experience people who don't like what we're doing. And they come from all stripes. I mean, really think about it. I've had people that have said horrible things on my YouTube page or whatever. I've had people who've said it who were Christian. I've had people that have said that were neo-Nazis. I've had people that have said that were uh, black Hebrew Israelites. I've had people who have said it who were Muslims. And I've had people who said it were Jews. Right? Did I leave out a group? There's probably somebody out there, right? Mothers Against Drunk Driving is next. <laughs> Everybody hates us, right? So, okay, so now that, you know, it's like, okay, there was a famous general one time in the Marine Corps during the Korean War. His name was Chester, Chester, uh, Chester Nimitz. I mean, I, I mean Nimitz. Okay, sorry. No, I'm sorry. I just went blank. Um, um, so he was in Korea, and the Chinese, there was a, the, uh, the reservoir, they were surrounded. And they said to him, we're completely surrounded. And so the general said, great, now we can fire in any direction. It really distinguishes where the lines of battle are, right? We're completely surrounded. Okay, great. We can fire now in any direction. So, uh, yeah, the Tevet offense. That's right, Bukashan. This is what we're called to do. All right, one more insight here. What's the danger of having a haughty nature? Isn't it interesting, by the way, when people attack you like that, that um, in, in the effort to try to, when in their mind, to do a, a, a deed of, of justice or something like that, they're committing a great sin? Something to think about. Something to remind us all about. Just like the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery, they thought they were doing God's will. They were confident of it, in fact. You watch Yali Day, you see how often I emphasize that fact. Not just me, but the commentators. Only to find out years later that they were completely and utterly wrong. But yet, the entire time, they were completely convinced they were right. So it says, we mentioned above that Ham represents the Yetzirah, that means heat, a person's body inciting him to sin. No one commits any transgression unless he's been heated up, so to speak, by the Yetzirah. So it says here, the underlying character trait behind all negative behavior is haughtiness. It is the root of evil in the world. As proof, 
Just open your eyes and see how many warnings are contained in the Torah and in the words of our sages regarding the dangers of haughtiness. How often does the Torah encourage us not to be haughty? And so what Pitika Hotam is saying here is that the very spirit of haughtiness is what is at the root of all of the things we do. If you think about it, turning against God's word in and of itself, even if you said, you know what, I know what it says in the Bible, but I don't care, I want to not do that. That is the ultimate haughtiness. That's ultimately making us an idol, a, our own self an idol, our own self, Hasve Shalom, God. So it says, our sages say the dust of a haughty person will not be stirred at the time of the resurrec resurrection of the dead. And he will therefore not merit seeing the divine presence. That's from Sota 5a. Furthermore, no one causes the bad angel of Samael and Lilith to raise their heads as much as a haughty person. Haughtiness, what it's saying here, literally, literally attracts mama and daddy of all the demons. That's what Samael and Lilith are, Lilith. They're the mama and daddy of all demons. Our sages taught us that many negative things result from haughtiness. In fact, we can see this very clearly with our own eyes. When a haughty person sees someone else being honored more than himself or even the same as himself, he becomes exceedingly jealous and resentful towards that person. Furthermore, a haughty person degrades everyone else, for he does not wish for anyone to be considered his equal. The many types of haughty behavior, it says here, are actually too numerous to enumerate. He goes on to talk about another haughty characteristic is Lashon Hara. Evil speech. Speaking evil about someone is, card, is, is equal to the cardinal sins of idolatry, illicit relationships, and murder. It says here there's another trait similar to speaking to Lashon Hara, which is the trait of spending one's time on street corners. Not talking here about prostitution, by the way. It says here, when one sits idly and associated with people who speak Lashonara, he will ultimately become like them. The idea here is who are we hanging around? With whom are we spending our time? And I want to issue a caution that is going to sound maybe a bit self-serving, but I can't help it. You need to be careful with whom you're spending your time, this means people that are your close friends, right? You've got to make sure they're of good character. We all have acquaintances and friends we know who maybe aren't walking the walk, and we maintain a relationship with them, maybe to a certain extent, hoping to bring them along. But you've got to be careful that, you know, you're not, like, hanging out with them, going to the ball game and all that kind of stuff. That's where it becomes dangerous. But I also want to caution you about something else especially when you're first getting started, be careful about getting online and just listening to every single rabbi that comes on the airways. And then, like, really being plugged in them. And I want to, it sounds self-serving, I know, uh, not really a way for me to say it without that aspect of it. But you really need to be plugged in to the teachers at Lapid Judaism. And you've got to be very careful if you watch religiously this rabbi or that rabbi, because sometimes it's happened in times past, 
Someone says, well, I watched Rabbi so-and-so this week, and Rabbi so-and-so, and Rabbi so-and-so, and Rabbi so-and-so. What they don't know, because they don't, really, they don't really know, is that all four or five or ten of those rabbis they religiously listen to are all on different sects. And they don't know because they're not used to it. So it would be like somebody who is new to Christianity saying, I know I listen to the Catholic priest today, and I listen to the Baptist pastor, and I listen to the, 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 the uh, Episcopal guy, and I listen to the uh, Lutheran guy, the Mormon guy, and the Pentecostal guy, uh, and it's been great. It's like, wow, you're in like seven different universes. And you're all confused, right? But then what also happens when you listen to these rabbis, and it's okay, sometimes you, get, you listen to things, you glean a little bit there. And I'm not, you know, don't, guess, I'm, don't misunderstand. I'm, I am not, please trust me, I am not, I don't lack self-confidence. I'm just saying. Okay. So if you, you know, it's not like, oh, my God, they listen to songs, whatever. Okay, but I'm, it's, about, it's about you, really. But you listen to somebody religiously, and you're like, man, I listen to so, uh, Rabbi so-and-so every single, oh, man, oh, God, every time the thing pops up, I'm listening to him. you got to be careful about that. Why? Because you're coming under that ministry. And that begins to infect your soul and can suck the soul right out of you. And you've got to be careful about that, you know, so you can learn and glean from some of these guys, but let's not... Lapid Judaism is where Messiah is. This is Mashiach-centered. We don't hide. I always find it funny when people say, um, y'all are a bunch of liars and figures. You're trying to trick people. It's like, wow, we're holding up a billboard that says Yeshua is king. That's how are we trying to, how am I trying to trick somebody? Yeshua-centered Judaism is our tagline for crying out loud. I mean, how am I trying to fake you out? That's, that's a bad head fake. Crazy, it's insane, it's dumb. There's no bait and switch here, like Rebetzine said. I mean, we, we're up front with who we are. You know, this is the meal we serve, and if you don't like it, then, you know, I mean, that's what we serve, so I'm just saying. It's like a child that says, I don't want that, I don't like that. It's like, well, so tonight's a fast night for you. Very holy. All of a sudden, they make tshuva. The fast, the fast is over. I'm ready to eat. Great. Great. All right. Just a couple more things, and then that'll be it. Another negative character trait that leads a person to too much evil is the habit of deceiving others in business. Being honest in business is a very important, very important trait. And I'm going to conclude with this. It says, from the land of Asher went forth and built Nineveh, Rechavot, Ir, and Kalak. Now, there's a commentary about Asher, which is interesting because his name is spelled just like Asher, but you add the Vav. You add an element of God's divine name, and it just so happens the name that was added to Asher was the Vav, which represents the man, which represents Mashiach. So later, Asher is the ancestor of Nineveh. So later when Nineveh hears the word of God, it's because way back when the Vav was added to his name. So as the verse alludes to the following, even if most of a person's life was spent in sin, and it's only at the age of 60 or 70 that he awakens and wants to repent, one shouldn't think that his repentance does not help or that it doesn't help him enough to inherit the share in the Ghana den. 
Since he has lived such a corrupt life until now and has been marked by heaven as an evildoer, never think this for a moment. For when a person truly repents, his sins are forgiven and forgotten. Furthermore, if his repentance is out of love, Pituke Hotam writes, if it's out of love, then all his sins are transformed into merits. Yoma 86a. Is it any wonder then that Yeshua said, if you love me, obey my commandments? Why? Because he wanted to make sure that our following him was out of love so that he could take all of our past faults and failures and sins and transform them as only he can do into merits. Baruch Abba Bashem Adonai. Amen. Amen.